when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. This is one of our reruns, one of our back catalogue podcasts from back when no one was ever listening to this podcast. Now there's millions of you every month. So we wanted to show some of you some of the jewels that we created back in the old days. I went around a tour on SS Great Britain, Brunel's mighty ship, the biggest ship in the world when it was launched. Just a complete industrial marvel. We're releasing the HMS Warrior documentary on History Hit TV. And to go along with that, we've just got a season of programs and podcasts that we're upping about the kind of huge engineering marvels of the early to mid-Victorian period. So check this one out, check this podcast out, and then go and check out History Hit TV, where all of your industrial engineering history needs will be met. You go to historyhit.tv, you enter the code POD1, you get a month for free and a month, after that for just one pound, euro, or dollar. And let me tell you what that's like. That's like having a sort of Netflix just for history, a place where you can go and geek out for the rest of eternity. We've got hundreds of hours of documentaries on there. It's all happening. So please go and check that out on historyhit.tv. And enjoy this, the tour around the remarkable SS Great Britain. And more importantly than this, go and visit it when it's open and safe to do so, because it is one of the treasures of Britain's remarkable stock of heritage buildings, ships and places. It's a wonderful place down in Bristol to go and visit. In the meantime, enjoy the pod. My name's Nick Booth. I'm Head of Collections here at Brunel's SS Great Britain. Nick, this is one of the best museums on earth. It must be very exciting to have your job. It is, yeah, and thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I love my job. Every day's different. Every day's a new adventure. Um, yeah. What is the SS Great Britain? For, for any insane people that haven't heard of it. So the SS Great Britain is Brunel's second ship. Uh, she's iron-hulled. She has a screw propeller. Um she is in dry dock permanently now in Bristol, in the same dry dock where she was launched and built. Uh, she was launched in 1843. She came home to Bristol in 1970, and now she's a visitor attraction. So people have heard of Brunel, greatest engineer of the industrial age, uh, invented so much stuff, it's almost pointless listing it. But why do, why, is, why do people think the SS Great Britain is one of his greatest achievements? She was so groundbreaking. So um, his first ship, the Great Western, was the first steamship built to cross the Atlantic. So this was the second steamship built to cross the Atlantic. She was the biggest in the world at the time, so she had to have a new dry dock built. She has so many innovations, and I, we can't really go into them now, but we're going to be looking around the ship in a second. We'll go to them then. Um, and yeah, she was just an extraordinary feat of engineering, an extraordinary maritime and naval feat of engineering. And she's really sort of the great, great, great grandmother of all modern ships today. Let's go aboard. 
Right, Nick, we're walking down into the dry dock. What, what's so special about where the SS Great Britain is stored? So she is in the dry dock in which she was built. Um, so in 1970, she returned home from the Falkland Islands and actually came home to the exact place where she was built. Um, it's, the dry dock had to be built specifically for the ship, so it's another one of Brunel's engineering projects. And really, it's, it's just a part of the whole ship, part of the experience. You come in, you walk down to the dry dock, and you get to see the hull in the place where she was built in Bristol. And un- unlike, say, HMS Victory, this dry dock has been turned into an atmospherically controlled space. Now, is that for the preservation? Yeah, so you might be able to hear behind me some humming. So we have two dehumidification, dehumidification units, Deep Thought 1 and Deep Thought 2, and they're named after Douglas Adams' book, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and, yes, yeah, so we have to keep the environment within the dry dock within about 20% relative humidity. So to give you an idea, that's about the same dryness as the Arizona desert. Next to us, we have Bristol Harbour. So outside the dry dock, the atmosphere wants to be about 60% relative humidity. So it's a really neat, impressive piece of engineering. And there at the end there, we can see the massive uh, propeller. Uh, it, tell me about, what, tell me about the, the, the drive of, of this vessel, because that was quite innovative at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, so when the Great Britain started to be designed by Brunel, uh, she was originally going to be a paddle wheel uh, steamship, uh, which he built, built one of those before. Uh, that would have worked. He knew it worked. It would get across the Atlantic. That would have made the shareholders money. But in 1840, uh, a new type of v- vessel visited Bristol, and she was a screw steamer. Brunel saw this and uh, wrote a report on it, and then somehow, and he must have been a very persuasive man, was able to convince the shareholders of the Great Western Steamship Company, which was building this ship, to stop construction for six months, allow them to hire this vessel, and to carry out experiments on it. So, cutting-edge innovation here. And was that a success, or did it, did it uh, add to price and not greatly increase performance? Oh, no, it was a success. So, the um, Great Britain's top speed was 12 knots. Um, the screw propeller is much more efficient than a side paddle steamer. So she'd use less coal, she was quicker, uh, it was an easier ride as well. So yeah, massive success. And in fact, uh, his report was so influential that uh, side paddle steamers died out. Well, it didn't completely die out, but very quickly they changed to um, screw steamers. So one of the many things that Brunel did in his life was kill off the paddle steamer. Yeah, um, so the Navy, not you know, the Royal Navy, perhaps not best known for um, its cutting-edge technology at that time, uh, very quickly uh, ado- adopted this. Um, HMS Warrior was the first one. And um, they liked this because being a naval ship, it meant if you had a side paddle on the side, you had uh, an exposed area which could be hit by gunfire, and you also had less space for guns. So this was a, quite a big innovation for them. And obviously the ship's made of iron. We can see the rivets here and the iron, the iron sheets. Was that unusual at the time, in, in well, 1840, when she'd been laid down? Yeah, it was unusual. So his first ship, the Great Western, was wooden. This, uh, the Great Britain was originally planned to be wooden, but very quickly they changed to iron. Uh, it was so innovative that um, they weren't fully aware of all the issues that come along with it. So there was a problem with navigation, with, uh, with compasses, and also um, with the with the propeller and the iron hull, they weren't really sure how to fully insure her. So on her seventh voyage, she actually ran aground in Dundrum Bay in Northern Ireland, and she was massively underinsured. It ended up bankrupting the Great Western Steamship Company. And is that how the ship tragically ended up as a, a, a sort of barge 
a, a dismasted barge in the Falklands. Oh, no, no. So it was a, only her seventh voyage that she ran aground. She was then bought by someone else and transferred to the um, Australia run. And actually, she made almost 50 voyages in total. It was only towards the very end of her life in 1886. So she had a huge working life. At that point, she was a sailing ship. So wind jammer, so she had no engines at all, and she was taking coal from the UK to America. And on her last voyage, she was trying to get to Panama. She couldn't go around the Horn, and eventually limped into the Falkland Islands and became a storeship for wool. So an incredibly long working life. Brilliant. So we're standing on the stern of the main deck. Now, is this still the quarter deck, or is it all just one big main deck? I don't know. Sorry. Okay, never mind. My ship geekery. We're standing on the stern of this beautiful uh, ship now the sun's out the bunting looks amazing all the flags are up on the mast one thing you notice nick is this has got uh, a big funnel for the steam engine but it's also got lots of masts so it's a kind of transition yeah it's exactly at the transition between sail power and steam power coming in and i mean quite understandably steam was such a new uh, innovation and invention that brunel wanted to have both forms of um, travel uh, both forms of propulsion on his ship in fact, his third ship, the Great Eastern, also had, as well as uh, sails and a screw propeller, they actually had a side wheel as well. So it's just basically throwing all this technology at a ship to get it moving. And this and the passengers would have been allowed to walk on this deck, presumably, and exercise during their, during their passage to New York. Yeah, uh, passage to New York, passage to Australia as well. So the captains were very keen uh, to get the passengers to get off on deck, to air themselves if it was possible, because they thought it kept them healthy and uh, kept the ship in better working condition. So um, the part that we're standing on now, actually, uh, we wouldn't be allowed on if we were steerage passengers. This is just for the first-class passengers. Oh, is that what the white line is there? Yeah, there's a white line there, and this is Victorian Britain, this is the Victorian world, so um, very sort of strict social uh, classes, and you can't mix, except on Sundays, where if you're a Church of England, you could come from steerage, you could come to first class and have your religious service there. If you were Catholic, you'd have to go to steerage, and that's where their service would be. Presbyterians were in second class. In in reality, how much did they use the sails uh, compared to just sticking the engine on and powering across the Atlantic? Well, it all depends where they're going. So the Great Britain could carry enough coal to travel to America just under steam alone. If she's going to Australia, that's a much longer voyage. I think the longest it took was over 80 days. And for that, they'd mostly use sail and only use um, the steam engine if they hit a a patch of of no wind, such as the doldrums. Um, And there we've got passenger accounts and diaries where they say they really enjoyed sort of steaming past these ships that were stuck. Nick, let's go below. Do you want to talk about the flags and how the fact that she's set up like she was? Oh, yeah, let's quickly do that, yeah. So what, what's with all the flags? They look very colourful. They do look very colourful. So the Great Britain, as she appears from the outside, is exactly how she looked when she was launched on the 19th of July, 1843. So we've got all sorts of pendants up. It was a really, it was a big, big day. We had thousands of people came down to Bristol to watch her. The Prince, uh, Prince Albert actually came on a special train to launch her as well. Um, so we've got the royal pendant flying. We've got a few different flags from different countries, such as America, uh, from ambassadors who'd come here to watch as well. And there's a really interesting story from when she was launched. So the wife of a shareholder was responsible for throwing the champagne against the side to launch her. Now, unfortunately, she missed. Um, I'm not totally sure how. I expect she was very nervous. There were literally thousands of people watching. So Prince Albert, thinking quickly, picked up a champagne bottle from his, um, from his lunch table and hurled it against the side to launch her. <laughs> That's brilliant. Prince Albert, I suspect, always had a champagne bottle handy. <laughs> so this is a very light space, beautiful space, airy, 
running a huge, running almost half the length of the ship. What, what's this room here? So we're standing on the promenade deck. So this is the first class, there's first class cabins either side of us. And this is where first class uh, passengers would be able to get their exercise if they weren't able to go on the main deck. And so all these cabins were, do we know anyone who was actually in any of these cabins, any of the journeys? Yeah, so everything on the Great Britain is based on uh, original accounts. So we've got passenger diaries, letters, logbooks. So everything on here is based on history. And I actually want to tell you about one cabin in particular, which um, we've really only just um, set up. So if we take you through, so we have to bend down because it's quite low being historic ship. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're looking at one cabin. It's got two bunks. It's uh, set up for one particular passenger, and that's a man called E.M. Grace. So E.M. Grace was the older brother of the better-known W.G. Grace. So E.M. Grace was also a doctor. He, was, he also played cricket for Gloucester, and he also played cricket for England. And he was the only amateur player on the second-ever tour of England on, in Australia. So the Great Britain carried the first and second-ever England teams to visit Australia. Um, and in his diary, he writes about his time on board, um, about taking exercise on the deck where possible, playing cricket, um, running around and playing a few other games. He also talks about sharing a cabin with a man that he calls the first ever cricketed, cricketing tourist. And this was a man called Sutcliffe. And Sutcliffe booked on the same passage as the England team to go out and follow them around Australia. So Sutcliffe was the first Barmy army and he ends up in a cabin with the wicketkeeper. Yep, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Sutcliffe couldn't believe his luck. 
That, imagine travelling all the way to Australia, 80 days with a, some super fan stalker in your cabin. Yeah, we know from uh, Grace's diary that he didn't think much of Sutcliffe. Um, at one point, Sutcliffe was uh, leaning over the side of the ship and he lost his hat. Um, Grace thought that this was uh, extremely embarrassing for a gentleman to do. Uh, Grace actually ended up lending him his own old red cap. Oh, my gosh. Did they win the tour? Uh, they did, yeah, yeah, they did. And Grace actually uh, was awarded a cricket ball by the rest of the team for excellent wicket-keeping. So it didn't affect him. Sutcliffe didn't affect his performance too much. <laughs> this is a stunning room, isn't it? It is, yeah. So we're standing in the first-class dining saloon. Underneath the promenade deck? Underneath the promenade deck, yeah. And there's actually skylights here that go all the way up onto the deck, so you get natural light in here as well. There we are, just um, if you... What a... What a stunning room this is. What happened in here? So we're standing in the first-class dining saloon. So this is under the promenade deck, and there's actually uh, skylights here that go all the way up onto the top deck, so you actually get natural light all the way in. So this is very different to conditions that they would have had in steerage, where everyone was just sort of eating on their laps, I imagine. Yeah, very, very different, yeah. If you're a first-class passenger, you eat extremely well on the Great Britain. Um, around us, we've got tables set up for, di- for dinner and lunches. Um, dinner is... Uh, Three set, two sets of knives, uh, soup spoons, dessert spoons. There's its own champagne for the Great Britain as well. You'd eat almost better than you might do on land. When when the passengers were uh, travelling to New York, presumably you could have fresh food on board. The journey time became so quick that it was a it was a almost a treat. Yeah, I mean, fresh food on board. Actually, when you go into Australia as well, there was live animals on board for milk and eggs, but also for slaughter. And um, there's flowers and there's a bakery on board, so you could bake your own bread. So there was a lot of fresh food going all the way along. Did the ease of travel suddenly change the way people thought about crossing the Atlantic? Did a whole new section of people start crossing the Atlantic who previously wouldn't have dreamed of it? Yep. So um, originally we thought that, I mean, when you get a view of a ship crossing the Atlantic, you think it's so difficult that most people must be going to emigrate. And there certainly were people on the Great Britain who were going to America or or Canada to emigrate. But actually you start, I mean, with ease of travel like this, you start to be able to know when you're going to arrive somewhere, when you're going to leave somewhere. You can schedule things in. You start getting, I mean, a lot of businessmen are traveling for business. There's people going for pleasure. So they might go just as a tourist or maybe in a honeymoon. We get people going from Australia. Australia to the UK on honeymoon, if you can imagine that, over 60 days on a ship as part of your honeymoon. Wow, well, you'd know by the time you arrived whether or not you were suited to be married to each other, that's for sure. <laughs> well, we've just put our hard hats on, our high vis, and we got to do the thing that I always love, which is come behind the scenes in this museum. We're down right at the bottom of the engine, bottom of the engine, we're looking up at a giant iron and steel beast stretching up above us, going, running the entire height of the ship. Was it, this, this is what the original, this is a huge bit of kit to drive this ship. It's massive, isn't it? Yeah. So it's over three stories. It goes all the way to the top of the ship. Um, it was Isambard's original engine was desi- uh, based on a design um, patented by his father, Sir Mark uh, Brunel, who was also a very good engineer. Um, the engine was on the first seven voyages, but when the Great Britain ran aground in Dundrum Bay in Northern Ireland, it was taken out uh, to lighten the ship to get her off the sand. And this is, does this engine still run? This is a replica, but you've made it so it can still run. Yeah, so it's a replica, but we have it running every day. Uh, We recently worked out that actually the replicas now travelled further than the original engines would have. Guys, obviously it's impossible to do justice this through me describing it, especially in my layman's terms. So there are photographs of this 
on the Facebook page and of course Dan Snow's History Hit and pictures and everything and then obviously on historyhit.tv you can see the video of this journey around SS Great Britain I urge you to go and do so because this engine is spectacular so we, we've also got behind us the thing without which the engine wouldn't work which are all the furnaces yeah, so there were 24 furnaces on the ship originally. Uh, they wouldn't all have been working at once, but the furnaces were fed by uh, people known as firemen and also uh, kept stocked with coal by what's known as trimmers. So these are two brand new jobs along with the engineer on board. So brand new when you put engines in a ship. And uh, they were very well paid, extremely well paid actually, um, much better paid than a able seaman would have been, although they didn't require as much skill. They were very well paid because they were so, it was so hot and dangerous. So the firemen who were responsible for feeding the fire worked on shifts of four hours, and they were responsible for constantly shoveling coal in, taking out the soot and embers and making sure the fire was working properly. In here, if this furnace was uh, firing properly, we would be standing in between 40 to 60 degrees Celsius. So that's about the Sahara Desert. Now, sailors had a water ration of six pints a day, uh, and that, for that, that was also that was drinking, that was also washing, that was cooking, so that was everything. With being a fireman, you didn't get any more water than the normal sail, say, uh, sailor. What you did get was an extra ration of rum. So an ordinary sailor on the Great Britain would get a quarter pint of rum a day. A fireman would get another quarter on top of that. Just to make that dehydration worse. What, is there any figures on how many tonnes of coal they might shift in one... In one uh, is there any sense of how many tons of coal they might be moving in one day so they were uh, when the ship was running uh, its engines they'd use about a ton of coal every watch so every four hours or so fantastic nick that was a real treat thank you so much right, let's just finish off the story of ss great britain uh, after doing the new york runs and then doing the australia runs that we saw so much about on board what happened to her after that so after that, in 1882, she had her engines taken out, uh, she was clad in wood, and she became a sailing ship. And uh, slightly ironically, she carried coal from the UK to San Francisco twice. On her third voyage as a sailing ship, she was going to Panama. She was taking coal from Penarth, um, and she was quite old by that point. Unfortunately, she struggled. She couldn't get round the horn. She was caught up in a great storm. She managed to limp into the Falkland Islands, and there they assessed her and realised that just wasn't worth, uh, economically speaking, repairing her. So she was sold to the Falkland Islands and used as a wool store until the 1930s. And then, even then, she was too old, too knackered, I suppose you'd say. Uh, and she was taken round the corner into uh, Sparrow Cove, where she was scuttled. And she lay there until 1970. Um, she was a bit of a tourist attraction for the local Falkland Islanders. There's stories of them going and have picnics on board, uh, which must have been something quite interesting because it was basically full of uh, bird guano and sort of rotting and uh, not looking in a great state. 1970, uh, she was saved for the nation. She was brought back to Bristol and uh, brought back to her dry dock where she was uh, built on the 19th of July, which is exactly the same date as uh, when she was launched. And now is one of the most popular museums in Britain. So well done to everything you and your team have done. Thank you so much for letting me come on board. Just in case people want to come and buy tickets, how do they do that? With your websites and Twitters and everything? So just search SS Great Britain. We, you can look through the website. Uh, you look on Twitter, at SS Great Britain. We're also on Instagram. Uh, come up, uh, Turn up on the day and buy a ticket. It gets you in for the whole year. We're open from 10 until 5.30 at the moment. Do it, people. It's brilliant.
Thanks so much, Nick. See you next time. Thank you. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.